We're going to be in 1 Peter, as you know, so if you haven't found your, your, your place there, please do so. It is a little toasty in the room, that's okay. I can't think of a better situation to, to have because of the book that we are embarking on this morning in terms of, of, of I would just say in a word, discomfort. We're going to be looking at a lot of that in the coming weeks and months as we walk together through this book. I'm thinking about, if you would have asked me when I was a child what I wanted to be when I grew up, I can promise you, pastor would not have been an answer. I was certain that I was going to be a basketball player or a football player, and that dream came crashing down. Actually, it didn't come crashing down in an athletic situation. It came crashing down in a classroom. I'll never forget my high school teacher, uh, Mr. Howard, social studies, said, boys, let me tell you, only one out of 1,000 high school athletes will actually make it to the professional level. I realized, oh, so I guess I'm not going to the pros. <laughs> That's insane. And he was right, and I certainly didn't make it. But when we open our Bibles to the book of First Peter, what we find is it's been approximately 30 years since the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the author of this book, the Apostle Peter, has grown up. He's grown up a lot. The Peter that we've come to know in the Gospels is not the Peter that we encounter in the book of 1 Peter. He is no longer the self-assured, swift to speak, slow to hear, quick to wrath apostle. The hour that he dictated this epistle called for someone who was holy, who was sober, who was vigilant. The Peter that we encounter in the Gospels would not have been qualified to write the epistle of 1 Peter. 30 years prior, he was not ready for this. He would not have been able to do this. He had failed miserably 30 years prior to this in the most critical hour at the first coming of his Savior. But he thrived in the hour of suffering that many Christians living in the area known as Turkey today. He thrived at their most critical hours, we're going to see. And so we begin in verse 1 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So this opening verse serves as a natural segue into an overview of the book of 1 Peter. Unlike the Pauline epistles, 1 Peter was not written directly to a local church. This is why it is referred to as one of the general epistles. Peter was writing, as he tells us, to strangers who were scattered throughout the northeastern part of the Roman Empire at that time. Now, his reference to strangers scattered helps us to understand exactly who he was writing to. This word strangers is a term in scripture that usually refers to Gentiles. And that's very, very important when you're trying to answer the question of who was first Peter written to. Scattered throughout simply means dispersion. So from the Babylonian captivity 
up until the time of, of the writing of 1 Peter, Jews often spoke of their dispersion. So when Peter wrote this epistle, there were about one million Jews who were actually residing in Palestine at the time, but somewhere between two to four million of them were residing outside of it. And to this day, the Jews remain scattered until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where they will be gathered under one head, which is him, and they will embrace him as Messiah and Lord. Now, these details are not hollow or insignificant, because suffering is clearly a theme of First Peter, and prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that will most certainly be the theme for the Jewish people. It will be suffering. They will suffer significantly during the tribulation. They will experience unprecedented bloodshed and loss of life. It will be unlike anything the world has ever known and can possibly know. It will be horrific. But a clear takeaway from uh, this opening verse and verse 2, as we're going to see it in a minute here, is that Peter was clearly writing to Jewish and Gentile believers. And that's very, very important to be able to state that when you're trying to understand this book of 1 Peter. The Apostle Paul, as we know, was the Gentile to the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, and the apostle Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, the Jews. You get that in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And so the tone of 1 Peter, as we're going to see, at times is very Jewish. Because Peter himself was Jewish. Peter himself was the apostle to the Jews. And so, yes, he's also writing to Gentiles and Jews, but it is absolutely at times very Jewish. It's, it's Jewish historically and at times prophetically, and we'll be sure to point that out as we go. But it is also doctrinally rich for believers living in the church age today. So it is not exclusive to Jewish people. So write this down. First Peter was not written solely to the Jews. It was not. This is one of the errors in trying to process or explain who 1 Peter was written to. It was not written exclusively to Jews. As a matter of fact, of all the general epistles, 1 Peter is the most Pauline of them all, as we'll see as we make our way through this. But suffering is clearly a theme in the book. Uh, some form of the word is mentioned about 17 times. Another key word in the book is the word glory. It is mentioned somewhere around 16 times. And so as I, as I looked at this and began preparing for this, I thought, well, I think the theme is pretty clear. Glory through suffering. That seems like a very natural theme, and that's certainly not incorrect. I think if you study or read anything, I think most commentators or most teachers would say, yeah, suffering or glory through suffering is a theme of 1 Peter. And it's certainly not wrong, but here's what we see in 1 Peter, in terms of his focus, what I couldn't get beyond as I just kept reading it and processing it and meditating and all of that was Peter's focus was clearly on the behavior of the Christian, on how Christians ought to behave. 
That is an unmistakable observation in the book. The word wherefore is mentioned four times in this short epistle. The word therefore is mentioned three times, and the word likewise is mentioned four times. So we understand that whenever we encounter those words in Scripture, that always means that, okay, this, whatever follows this, is now reflective of what our response must be to a truth in God's Word. So there is an action for you and I to take as Christians based on what God has just said to us from His Word. Not to mention what follows those words in 1 Peter, uh, which deals with our behavior, is you're going to see this over and over again where He says, So be ye holy, be sober, be subject to your masters, be in subjection to your husbands, be ye all of one mind, be pitiful, be courteous, be ready, and on and on and on and on. And so the theme just became very natural for me in that, oh, the theme of this book is Christian behavior. It's who the believer is to be. And whoever you are is how you're going to behave. That's very clear. So how do we glory in suffering? By being who we should be. We glory in and through suffering by behaving the way that God would have us to behave, where it brings him glory. Now let me establish why that's important. There is no scriptural evidence whatsoever that the Apostle Peter was ever in Rome. Okay, you can look at Romans 15, 20 as a reference and there are other places, but there's no scriptural evidence at all regarding that. Most conservative scholars and historians date the writing of 1 Peter somewhere around 80, 60, 80, 64, somewhere in there. By then, tolerance for Christians within the Roman Empire was waning, and persecution was ramping up. It had started as this little, in their minds, this little cult that just like so many before, it would just kind of fade away over time, and it most certainly was not doing that. And it reached a boiling point in AD 64 with the great fire of Rome where the wicked, diabolical Roman emperor Nero burned the city of Rome for selfish reasons. And when it was found out that it was actually him, or when he realized that he was suspected of doing so, uh, he blamed Christians for it. And again, that the tolerance for Christians at that time was waning, and so, yes, it was them. And people readily accepted that. I quote, Nero, he said, it's not I who burn the city, it's these who speak of the unquenchable flames of hell. And that lit the flame for unprecedented persecution and attack against Christians in the Roman Empire. Christians were literally burned alive and fed the lions. Women and children before husbands and fathers. And I unabashedly say 
that some of us can't get over the fact that some aren't wearing masks. And we can't get over the fact that some are wearing masks. There are some, even at Midtown, who are harboring bitterness in their hearts because in their prideful estimation, we're not doing enough to speak out and speak against the racial and social injustices of what's happening in America. Talk to me when they start feeding us to lions and burning us alive. We are Laodicean and soft to the core. We don't know what suffering is. We don't know what's hard. We are selfish, self-centered, self-intoxicated, self-absorbed. We are drunk on ourselves. We don't know what's hard. Christians were burned alive and fed the lions. I cannot imagine watching my wife and my children before my eyes being mutilated and butchered. It is estimated that six million Christians killed and our feelings are hurt because I don't like this and I don't appreciate that and I didn't get my way and I don't six billion God help us what is wrong with us that is surely a picture of what will happen to the Jewish people in particular in the tribulation. This is why I do not believe that Peter ever had to visit the city of Rome. This type of persecution was widespread throughout the Roman Empire. He would have known. And the Christians in the northeastern part of the Roman Empire that he wrote to or most certainly being affected by it, as we will see as we continue to read. So again, what's the point? The point is this, in the face of all of that, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Peter was moved to write to and challenge Christians. <laughs> you, you think you know what injustice is, you have no idea. but in a climate of immense injustice. He was writing to Christians to be holy, to be sober. What? What? You don't get a pass. This is something that we have to learn, all of us. Listen, there are no circumstances there are no scenarios in life that give you and me as Christians permission to misbehave, to not behave like we should behave. 
So I'm in a hard situation. I'm in a hard season. I'm going through a hard time. So that gives me license now to be carnal, to be unsober, to be unthankful, to murmur, to complain, to whine, to be depressed, to abstain from worship, to abstain from serving God, because I'm not getting my way in life. This is why we need this book. So verse 1 provides us with the author and the audience. We keep going in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. As it relates to the topic of Calvinism, verse 2 is a very critical verse. The first word, obviously, is elect, and I think a verse that is often overlooked or left out in a discussion, and I'm not here to stand as the guy who's going to solve it for everybody, but let me just be clear. What we read in Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. The servant mentioned here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is the first mention of the word elect in Scripture. Christ is God's elect. And his, listen, <laughs> this is critical, and his election had nothing to do with salvation, did it? <laughs> Could not have been because it was Christ who is God's elect. I think he's saved. <laughs> it had to do with his work of redemption. Now, elect can also refer, as it does in Scripture, to the nation of Israel, but it also refers to believers, Gentile believers, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As it relates to all of that, I just want to point out two very basic things. Number one, would you notice in verse 2 that election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's very important to the discussion. In other words, election is always based on what God knows in advance because he is omniscient. It's very important. Would you look down here in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 19? But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who was verily, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. That word foreordained, it means to know in advance. That's what it means. Now, if God knew from the foundation of the world that his son, which was his lamb, the lamb of God, was slain. Revelation 13, 8. How could he not know who would choose his son? How could God not know that? From the foundation of the world, he was slain. God knew this. God knew this in advance. So did God's foreknowledge stop there? Of course it didn't. How could it? 
That's who God is. Election is connected to God's elect. We just saw that Christ is his elect. And those who are saved are in him. They're in his son, his elect. So God has chosen his son. And when you choose his son, God chooses you because you've chosen his son. Because his son is his elect. Again, I don't want to make this any more complicated than it needs to be. This is why we're told in Ephesians 1 verse 6 that we are what? Accepted in the beloved. Well, who's the beloved? Christ, God's elect, is God's beloved son. Matthew 3, 17. So if Christ is God's beloved and you are in him, you are elected and accepted. Pretty simple. Peter continues in verse 2 by saying that God's election was also through the sanctification of the Spirit. So at salvation, the Holy Spirit of God made us holy in Christ. Praise the Lord. What a blessing to know that positionally before God, because we are in Christ, we are holy. We're sanctified. Praise the Lord. If that is true, and it is, well, then why is it in this very chapter as we read on, why is it that Peter then tells us to be holy if we already are? The command to be holy is simply calling us, listen, to behave like we are in Christ. Where how are we in Christ? We're sanctified, we're holy, we're set apart. Okay, behave that way. It's called sanctification. Sounds basic, doesn't it? But would you notice what Peter attached to the sanctification of the Spirit? Look at it. Unto obedience. When our behavior matches our position, guess what we're doing? We're being obedient to the truth. We're being obedient to the Word of God. More on this in a few weeks, but again, look down here in chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. That's it. With unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, all of this, if we're honest in a church like this, all of this sounds doctrinally routine, does it not? Okay, I've heard all this, man. You're not saying anything. I haven't heard. I, I, I get all of this until you consider the magnitude of their suffering at the time. Then how simple is it? How routine is it? And this is what gets us the most routine aspects of God's word. The most basic things that we know become so very hard for us to believe and live when we're in the furnace of affliction, trial, and hardship. The things that we have taught so many other people, the things that we know we can rattle off, we can quote just like that, 
but man, I'm going through a difficult time, and so all those simple truths that I know so well, all of a sudden, I'm not sure I really believe that right now. Be holy? Are you kidding me? Be sober? Do you have any clue what's going on in my life right now? (laughs) God, do you really expect me to be humble right now? Do you really expect me to be glad with exceeding joy? This is what Peter told them. Wait a minute. They're burning us alive. They're burning my wife. They're burning my children. They're feeding us the lions. And you want me to be glad with exceeding joy? What? As a true New Yorker would say, forget about it. No way. Not doing that. Not so routine now, is it? This is the thing that gets me. Whenever I'm going through a really difficult time, and I have those times, just so you know, I'm not exempt. (laughs) God just is always with me. And he knows what I know. Because he knows what he's taught me. So, son... You know what to think, you know how to think, you know how to speak, and you know how to behave. Do it. But our election in Christ and sanctification through the Spirit is only possible because of the blood of Christ. Look at verse 2 again. And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So here in this verse... Uh, of verse 2 of chapter 1 here in 1 Peter, we have a reference to the Holy Trinity. We've got the foreknowledge of God the Father, we've got the sanctification of the Spirit, and now we have the blood of Jesus Christ. And this reference to the sprinkling of blood was and is very Jewish in tone. The sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat in the tabernacle by the high priest on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, Yom Kippur, was a picture of what Christ, our high priest, did for us as our propitiation for sin. You see that. Referring to saints that will be saved in the tribulation, notice what John wrote in Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. He said, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. There is power in the blood of Jesus. There is power. There is power. There is power to save, and there is power to overcome the devil himself. That will be true in the tribulation. But it was also true to the audience that Peter was writing to at this time, 
And it is also true for us today living in this time. So when you look at this reference to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, notice it doesn't end with a period. It ends with a colon, which means there's more for us to consider in terms of what that means. And here's where we're going. The key for believers today who are going through hard things is that you got to have a multiplication of grace and peace. This is the first time in the New Testament that we have a reference to grace and peace being multiplied. Did you know that? Did you know that you can multiply grace and peace in your life? Absolutely. So what is the key to being who we need to be in a hard season? I got to multiply God's grace and peace. Which means God says, I can give you more. We learn from the Apostle Paul that God's grace is sufficient when we are afflicted. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We also learn from the Apostle Paul that the peace of God passes all understanding. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is how we can behave as we should. How is it that we're sober in a very difficult time? How is it that we can be glad with exceeding joy? How is it that we can humble ourselves? How is it that we can behave in all the ways that we're going to learn that we are to behave as Christians in very difficult times? How can I do that? You and I can and will do that when grace and peace are multiplied in our lives. It's not that you grit and you grunt and you just get through it and you just endure it and you pull yourself out your bootstraps and you're just going to be tough and hard. Forget about that. God, I've got to have a multiplication of your grace that is sufficient in times like this. And I've got to have peace that passes all understanding. Where, yeah, to the average person, I should be coming apart, falling apart, discombobulated. I'm a mess. But instead, I am upright and good. Why? Because of the multiplication of your grace and peace in my life. Okay, here's the question. How do I do that? I'm glad you asked. How do I multiply God's grace and God's peace in my life. Well, Peter didn't leave us hanging, did he? Look at 2 Peter 1 verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. I wonder how. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how. The grace and peace of God is multiplied in our lives, listen, through fellowship with God, through the Word, capital W. Referring to Jesus, the Word of God. 
That's what Peter says here in 2 Peter 1 verse 2. That's how. You cannot and you will not experience the multiplication of God's grace and peace if in your life in any season. If you are not faithfully in an unrelenting way walking with God through this word. And I'm going to tell you what so many Christians have done and what so many Christians do. I've seen this movie so many times. What so many Christians do when they find themselves in a very hard season is they divorce themselves from God's word. Well, that doesn't work, clearly. If it did, I wouldn't be in this situation. So who can I run to? Who can I talk to? Who, who, who can fix this for me? Who, who, who can bail me out? What counselor, what doctor, what, 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 what program, what, what, you name it, what fix? Because this clearly does not work. Here's the problem. Wherever you go and whoever you run to, if it's not this book, here's what they cannot do. They cannot multiply grace and peace in your life. They cannot do that. Listen, praise God for counselors and doctors. Praise God for all of that. But I was taught years ago, and I completely agree. Listen, psychotherapy can treat the mind, but it can't fix the heart. This can. This can't, and some of you are struggling, and you've been struggling for years, and you're going to keep struggling, and the reason you're going to keep struggling is because you keep pushing this book aside in your life. And you pay dearly when you do. Lord, help us as we embark on this journey in 1 Peter. God, there's so much more that you have for us. I do pray that you would prepare us week in and week out to get what you have for us, for your glory. God, I thank you for the believers who have gone before us, who have suffered so greatly, but behaved as Christians. Let us learn from their testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.